You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to this second dialogue for Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to the cloud of unknowing um, that was written by an anonymous author. I'm here with Jim, and uh, we'll be reflecting on his second talk. So welcome, Jim. Yes, welcome to you. In the last talk, you were reflecting on Chapter 7 of The Cloud, and yet again, just beautiful, the words and the... Intonations just beautiful. So, just to begin, Jim, just wanting to ground us in what the cloud of unknowing is about, which is a it's guiding us in a practice of contemplative prayer. And I wanted to start with a phrase from your talk that really touched me. So, you spoke about the cloud helping us with this phase of our life where this way to pray finds its meaning. It was a beautiful phrase, and I just wondered what you meant by by finding its meaning. What's what's the meaning we experience? Let me um, put the whole thing in context. Let's say we were looking at this in earlier sessions on creation, Merton, and all these mystics, how they understand this. So how they understand it is that God's creation, God's let it be, um, is absolute and perpetual. That is, in creation, God is pouring God out and giving God away in and as the reality of ourselves, others, and all things. So if we think of God as generosity, that we're the generosity of God, as are the passing of the seasons and the darkness of the night and the sacred quality of what is. So in that sense, the plenitude of God is the very realm in which we live. Next, God also then, uh, unlike stones and trees and stars, endows us with the capacity to recognize that as persons. And recognizing that are are these uh, degrees of spiritual realization that come to us. And these degrees of spiritual realization have... um, like there's incremental degrees of realizing the infinite generosity of every breath and heartbeat. And so in the very beginning, say with, say, Guigo with Lexio, he starts out with how we normally tend to understand God's presence in our life through the gifts of God revealed to us in Scripture through the all that's revealed and that God is love, God is mercy, all that Jesus reveals, all the scripture reveals. And we take that, we take that gift in and respond to it in our lexio. We meditate on it in our lexio. We pray to deepen it in our prayer, and we seek to live it. And that's the context for how we tend to experience God and live our life. And we also know, our faith tells us, that when we die, and pass through the veil of death, that will move from these mediations of 
of God's presence in our life through the gifts of God, our life, our breath, our insights, our faith, will pass through the veil in, into God, as Claude of Unknowing says, God naked as he is mm. in himself. And so knowing God as God knows God with God's own knowledge of God, which is Christ, loving God with God's own love of God, which is the Holy Spirit, being taken into God, being as much God as God is God in our eternal nothingness without God, which is the mystery of the life of glory that awaits us. Well, what happens um, as we're living this life in this um, aware of God's goodness to us, through his gifts to us, the special way, is that there's, just, there's stirrings of love, like deep stirrings of love. There's moments of unexplainable oneness or communion. And they pass, and those fleeting moments enrich our faith, they enrich our gratitude. But what happens in the singular way is that those touches of oneness start to settle into us with a desire to abide there always. So it's, it is as if poetically speaking, there's a boundary crossing where God crosses the boundary. And in the desire to abide in the stirring, it's a foretaste of eternal life. We're not content with the gifts of God with the insights of God, the consolations of God, the truths of God. And that's like the person writing the word water in the mm -hmm. sand over and over and over again. For having tasted God, very God, all these thoughts of God, as beautiful as they are, we don't reject any of them. But compared to the beloved, it is God revealing to us that we are God's beloved. The singular way then is that longing. And so the way of prayer then is a, a way of praying that's addressed to a person who finds himself or herself in that strange place, which is this, gives it its meaning. There is this longing within me that I don't understand, and uh, but I, I tasted it. And I, I can't make these moments happen, but there's a way to pray that stabilizes me in a stance that offers the least resistance to being overtaken by the abiding oneness with God beyond the gifts of God. Mm. And that's the, that's the context for the prayer. Mm. Now, I would say this too, secondly, while that's, while that's true for the person who's in that state, whatever degree, any of us are free to, to read the cloud and benefit from it. Yes. Because even if we're sitting at the very first beginnings of Lexio, we're just beginning, the full generosity of God is raining down into us as God, giving it to us as the Lexio. And we also sense in the Lexio and in the meditation, there are certain moments of stillness. There are certain moments where we pause to rest in it. And so that's the way in which in the broad sense it's for all of us. But in particular, it's for those of us who are at this certain place, this mysterious place. And Thomas Merton said he thinks there are many people who are called to this, but they have no one to bear witness to them what's happening to them, uh, especially out here in the world where you're not encouraged or even mm -hmm. to get help. So th that's my sense of it. See, I think that's the context that makes it so personal for each of us as we yes. listen to this. That's really helpful, Jim. I wanted to expand on that desert metaphor, just spend some time helping to really understand it and maybe maybe even expand on it. 
the, this idea that any thought of God or any idea of God is, is not God, and you use this desert metaphor to try and help us understand that so that the writing of water in the sand is not water and, and it's similar to our thoughts that run through our minds and that might be thinking of God, pictures of God, thoughts of God, kind of emotions about God. It's not God in the way we're looking for God with this type of prayer. Here's an example I that helps me. I think we share this in the session on Merton. I can't remember. The example I use is imagine a couple, they're together, they're very much in love with each other, and she has to be away for a long period of time, maybe the military or whatever. And um, so every every um, week they write each other a long love letter. So the highlight of the week is getting that letter. So she here, without him realizing it, has had the opportunity to come back and visit, but he doesn't know it. And so she's parked out on the street down the road of waves. And she sees the mailman drop her letter into the mailbox. She sees him step out and take her letter out. He doesn't know she's watching him. And he sits down and he opens the letter and reads it. And so in his love for her, every word she says is lexio. Every word goes right to his heart. And also he he, uh, reflects upon it. Like he pauses upon it. She says this, she says that. And this evokes prayer, which is a longing to be one with her. This reverie of communion. And right in the midst as he's holding this love letter, she walks into the room and he looks up at her saying nothing. That's contemplation. So contemplation is the direct oneness of the beloved Mm. beyond and through all the beloved's words of love. And it's that that presence of the beloved that's fleetingly tasted in the stirring. And it's the longing to abide in the actual presence of the living beloved. That's the singular way. And so the prayer then is to stabilize in, in the desire to that abiding of a communion beyond words, beyond thoughts, beyond consolations, beyond in, in, in the simplicity and sincerity of your heart. So it doesn't mean we reject any of these. Just like he wouldn't throw a letter in the trash. Right. <laughs> he, he, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I don't need this. He, he treasures it all the more. He keeps it. Yes. But he keeps it because it has a deeper meaning to him. Because now every word is a poetic metaphor. Every word resonates with intonations mm-hmm. of union. See? And so that's, that's what I think like the scriptures are when we read the scriptures. And so yes. So that's, that's one way I understand That's it. really helpful. With the desert metaphor, uh, you're, you're um, using water as the image for God. So someone's out in the desert really longing, like life depends on it for for God, say, and they're writing God in the sand, um, and then they might get a taste of God. But, Jim, help me understand um, how this works with your teaching that really they already have God. Yes. Let's, let's put it this mm-hmm. way. I'm going to go back to creation again. Yeah. We already have God because God already has us. Yes. Because God's create God in a self-donating act is giving God away as us. Yes. 
as our breath, our heartbeat today, all of this is the presence of God. And also, we also know that God has us uh, in our realization of the Lexio through Scripture, in that we're able in, in prayerful attentiveness, in reflections upon God. So when we hear that God loves us, through the power of the Spirit who dwells in our hearts, we can know that God does love us mm -hmm. through that idea, that God's with us, that God's all-merciful, and so on. But in the taste of God, in the stirring of very God, the beloved standing in the room, then all these words are a desert, and that all these words of God that really are the words of God are compared to the fullness of God as God, like a desert. Mm -hmm. see? Words, 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 words. I see. So how can I find my way to the one who's speaking these words? See? And it's drawing me toward this union beyond all words. Mm -hmm. And is it true too, Jim, that the the in the desert metaphor that we can't we can't make the water come to us but we might be gifted come across water in the desert and uh and and so it's the gift of the water arising in in a mysterious yes, way yes this is my sense of it let's say regarding everything real we really are powerless to make anything happen like we can't bring ourselves into existence to be at the deathbed of a dying loved one, we can't give ourselves our next breath. It doesn't lie in our power to give our next heartbeat, lest we be presumptuous. Likewise, anyone, any creative activity, the poet or the artist, they can't make the, the, the beautiful happen. See? And so everything um, is given. And so the effort is how to stabilize in a stance that allows the flow of the given to flow through us. And I, I, th I think that's, that's really true. So we, we, we simply can't make this happen because that's why I say um, you, you cannot get the, the ocean into a thimble, but you can drop the thimble into the ocean, and we are that thimble. So I can't get the fullness of God. Into, I can't get the fullness of God's infinite presence into the symbol of my finite ideas of God's infinite presence. Mm. See, I can't get the full God's oceanic love into the symbol of my felt consolations of God. It isn't that they're not real. It is that I don't treasure them, that they don't lead me. But compared, see, compared to that. So that, that's, that's really what it is, I think. It's, a, it's just kind of leaning in towards... Um, allowing this desire to have its way with us, this God-given desire for God. And and how do we learn not to get in the way? And this is where he gives us the method mm -hmm. see, of this love. This It's a knowledge born of love. What also struck me about the metaphor is when we drink the water, it's a mystery in terms of how it um, gives us life. And, I, I mean, there'd be kind of a scientific method about what water does and but as we're experiencing the water, we, we can't tell all the ways our body is mysteriously being given life by the exactly. water. Exactly. And like in the Psalms, more than the deer longs for running streams, oh Lord, do I, do I long for you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So when we're actually drinking the water, which should be a moment of contemplative communion, mm -hmm. uh, the finite 
mind that's being transcended by the communion doesn't know what to make of it. Mm. It's just that the finite mind puts the do not disturb sign on the door. It's <laughs> like, you know, please do not disturb. Mm-hmm. You don't, uh, put no thoughts, please, no, please, please, I don't want anything to intrude upon. Because really to drink the water is a communion mm-hmm. in which in some sense we and God mutually disappear as dualistically other than each other. It's intimately realizing it's just oneness in all directions mm-hmm. is to drink the water. So we were protective of that. Now what happens as we learn to stabilize in that, then we're able to see this divinity shining out through our ideas, mm-hmm. through our words, through our actions, to be a contemplative man or woman established in this. But we first have to wean ourselves off our dependency on these finite means so that in the drinking of the water and the communion, this established in the communion, we're able to see the communion everywhere. Yes. See, like the divinity of each passing moment. We kind of resonate or sense that in ourselves. Yes. And you might know that something happened to you when you drank the water, but you, you can't know, you can't really know because you're not, in touch with your body in that deep way, but you come out different because every cell is going to be given a new taste of life as a result of drinking the water. So you you can feel it, but you can't kind of break it down second by second or every little thing that occurs. See, this is where this term unknowing comes in. Yeah. So unknowing is not not knowing. Mm Mm-hmm. But also unknowing is not knowing as in conceptually knowing. For the this knowing born of love is transconceptual. So it's a deep way to understand what it means to understand mm-hmm. in this love. Now, when the reflective self reflects on it and tries to form concepts of it, it finds that there's no concept of it that's capable of doing justice to it. But there are concepts and words that bear witness to it, which are the words of the mystics. These texts, they they sing with it, like you can feel the rhythm of it, everything. And I also think it's the Gospels, the Scripture, understood contemplatively. Mm -hmm. It's like like the logo, the living word, that uh, resonates with what lies beyond what words can say, or what thought can comprehend, but in your heart. You, you learn to understand. That's the unknowing. Mm-hmm. Think, yeah. Your desert met- metaphor did make me think of the way Jesus was drawn to into the desert to find a deeper sense of God. And also notice in the story of Jesus, it goes into the desert, the temptations of mm-hmm. Jesus. And really they're like temptations for possessiveness or ownership or depending on the finite. They're really metaphors for our temptations. Mm-hmm. For the idolatry of circumstance, the idolatry of attaining, the idolatry of whatever. And so to be steadfast in this love is to keep leaning into the fullness of this love that is the reality of bread, the reality of true power, the reality of this was so profound about those temptations. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. So I wanted to focus 
now on the particular teaching of this chapter, which is this idea of uh, coming up with a word that, that will help with the practice. And I just wanted to hear from you, Jim, what the purpose of the word is. I read in the chapter and in your talk, there's, there seem to be two aspects. One is this idea of I'm trying to gather all of my attention wholeheartedly, whole body, whole, whole everything towards God. But then it also talked about the word as um, a protection, a protection, and I'm wondering if that's a protection from losing that focus on yeah. God. So let's say then that the, the way to pray is very simple, really, is to sit and let your intention be to love God for God's sake and not for his gifts. That's the intention. But that intention of uh, loving God for God's sake, loving love for love's sakes, St. Bernard Clairvaux calls it disinterested love, is not a love for the sake of what circles back to how we benefit from it. It's purely a self-donating love that echoes God's self-donating love for us. It's in the reciprocity of self-donating love. That way is so simple to sit. But its very simplicity makes it elusive. See, it sounds clear intuitive, especially yes. if you've had a taste of this experience. You say, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. So what the word serves then is an anchor mm. in the simplicity of that intention. Is what it is. And I, I mentioned too in the reflection that um, th- th- there are other, the, the other text we're going to be studying later in this series is, is the way of a pilgrim, the Jesus prayer, where you find the word of Jesus mercy. And so in these traditions, they have different anchors. For some, it's the breath. There's also the anchor of the mandala, the visual of the cross or the icon of Jesus. Ornstein, one writer, says about the mandala, the longer you gaze at it, the less obvious it gets. You know, it's like a mandala, the divinity of everything. So what we're looking for then is a mandala or an anchor. Why? Because that in us has been awakened to this, to move beyond thought into this love. There is still that in us that's still accustomed to knowing God through thinking. This is kind of moving into a, Abraham called into a land he knew not. And it doesn't, it doesn't politely step aside so we can have mystical union. It, thoughts arise, and the thinking self tries to get us to think about the thoughts that arise. So the thought, the, the word then is an anchor that politely refrains from thinking about any thoughts that arise. Mm. Because we're seeking a love that's beyond all these thoughts, as valuable as they are as holy as they are. Um, So we use the word to refrain, and that's a purgative process. It takes a while to be weaned off of that. How do we get our bearings? Like I said, it's a a very subtle, different way to experience. It's like a boundaryless state of presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, By thought. Anyway, that's the intuition of it, I think. Yeah, that's helpful. For people who are wanting to try this practice, how would you advise them to come about the word that's 
the word they should be using. Well, you know, the cloud of unknowing suggests you know, choose a short word rather than a long one, or you can use a phrase. Mm -hmm. Like in an earlier talk, I used the I love you prayer. Like, I love you, I love you, I love you. Or the Jesus, you know, Jesus, mercy, Jesus, mercy. So he says the main thing is to find a word that's meaningful for you. But to know the value of the word does not lie into your thoughts about it. The value of that word that's meaningful to you is the anchor to transcend thought. So you choose a word that's personal to you, love or mercy or yes. And that word might change over time. So the idea is you use it as a defense to stabilize yourself against this, the temptations of thought to get you to think. And you just stay anchored in the word as a love act, like this, uh, this, this love grounded in this word. And also, it's interesting. This is what's different about John Maines and Lawrence Freeman on the on the desert tradition too. Is it's not the mantra, as in where they speak of using the word like a plow, like you just you you die to your ego by repeatedly saying the word over over over, and and it becomes then like a plow that plows through tendencies to think and to love. Mm -hmm. For the author of The Cloud of Unknowing and uh, Thomas Keating and Centering Prayer, you use the word as needed. Use the word. So the image I have is this, imagine, you know, there's these birds, they, they, they soar on the thermals, you know, they ride the, and if, and if you watch them, as they start to lose altitude, they'll flap their wings a few times and they keep going. So I say, let's say your word is Jesus. Let's say the word is Jesus. So you're sitting there in the sustained attentiveness for love. And as you're sitting there, a thought becomes particularly intrusive. You're losing altitude. And so you go, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And you regain the thing. Another distraction, Jesus. So you use the word to restabilize the state see, as needed. And there might be long periods the word just falls aside. There's just long periods of the sustain. And there's other times, like he said, you can be set by, besieged by thought. You, there's a whole chapter devoted to that where you're kind of, it makes an onslaught against you. But, um, but that's the logic of the word. That's the, the transformative power of the word. That's a very powerful visual. I hadn't heard you teach on that before. That's, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I know uh, when you're a beginner, you can get very anxious about things like this. You know, is it the right word? Did I, is it a prayerful word? Do you have any encouragement for, it sounds like there's no wrong word. <laughs> Thomas Merton once said in a talk to the novices, he said, with God, a little sincerity goes a long, long way. See, and that's, that's what counts. And the other way I put it, you might have mentioned it before, is that, say two, two people that are being together and falling in love with each other and spending time with each other. One doesn't come to the other and says, you know, I just was reading this book on intimacy. And it said that sometimes intimate friends are sometimes silent. We're always talking. <laughs> I, wonder if we're, I wonder if we're doing this wrong. He's, oh my God, what page is that on? Oh, you're right. So it's, it's that when there is sincere, love takes care of them. It isn't that they always don't have things to learn. Yes. But you learn by trial and error based on the ways of love. And I think that's what counts. We approach it with a generous heart and a sincere heart. And we learn as we go. So we just don't try it two or three times and try to let it click in. This is a way of life. 
and just stay with it with sincerity, you'll discover that in the weeks and months and years, it deepens of itself just through the constancy of your fidelity to it insofar as you're called to do so. And I think that's what matters. That's helpful. I know when I first started uh, trying this type of prayer, the word that came to me was uh, let go, you know, like the trying to um, uh, have words that embody the, the, the thing that I was trying to do in, the, in that time. So that really worked for me for a while every time I merged into a thought or got stuck in a sensation, just let go, you know, let go. I've done that too. I've used that also. I've also added let go, let be. Mm. Eckhart talks about letting what is be, see, and we're letting go. Another another thought on this, <clears throat> he's going to say this later in the book too, is you, you try it on for size and it might not sit with you. Now, what matters is holiness. What matters is the naturalness of this. Also notice this. I don't practice this form of, I don't use a word like this. I don't practice centering prayer. Because notice, we t- pointed this out before. See, we're going along in Lexio meditation and prayer. Then there's a boundary crossing where we're touched by God, the stirring. And, then in the, and so in the boundary crossing, for God, the boundary crossing is the stirring deepened by the desire to stabilize in it. And therefore, the method is really a response to an experience. It's not a method. It's a way to stabilize in the experience. But notice, for St. John of the Cross, there's no method. He says, you're praying, and there's a dark, you, in a passage through a dark night, there's this powerlessness to experience God's presence. And you lean into that and follow that. For Teresa of Avila, there's no method. The first three mansions are Lexio Divina and so on. But the fourth mansion, your heart being enlarged to divine proportions. And so you kind of surrender to what's happening to you in the midst of your Lexio. And that's the method. And so likewise, for the cloud, this is his, quote, method, but it's a non-method method. You know, it's a strategy to uh, obey the promptings of your heart. And so as soon as it's turned into a technique, it falls back into the uh, sincerity of the ego trying to master something, see? And the only thing the ego can master is more of itself. See? You know what I mean? Because if you're if you yes. even capable of making it through a method, since your method was a finite effort or your finite self, that union with God would be finite. And so really, it's provisional. It's the artistry of a provisional strategy to keep things as freed up as possible for this grace gift from flowing as, as freely as it can. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the temptation of the ego to bring it back to, I can write water in the sand, you know, like I'm, and, and so, yeah, we can turn it into writing the water in the sand rather than the, the openness. But that's the exactly true. And the poor ego mm-hmm. can't help itself. You know, it's always trying yeah. <laughs> to, it doesn't politely give up its claim to have the final say in who we are. And so we can lovingly watch it do that. But we can also, with God's grace, not give in to it. By the way, that doesn't mean you might not be moved to write of it. For example, your journaling might become a way to pray. And, and by the way, notice this author wrote. But oh, yeah. he felt moved to write to help us. And so it's always a matter of discernment what our intentions are 
And it can also help me with this. I write to try to quietly express this as directly as I can as a way to pray, like a poetry in blank verse. Like, how do I put words to this? You know, not to pin it down, but to bear witness to it and help others realizing it like this. So I think it's, it's not, not using words or thoughts. It's the intention in which the words are used, yeah. Yes, beautiful. Jim, can you help us understand this idea of the way the word might help us, this, this phrase of assign thoughts to the cloud of forgetting beneath you? What's happening So there? the image I use with the two clouds, the image I use when I used to give retreats on, say, a commercial flight on a cloudy day, is the plane goes up through the clouds but then you hear discover, once you get above the clouds, here there's another layer, another layer of clouds above those clouds. And you're flying in between those two clouds before you go up over the next one. So we're traveling between these two clouds. The cloud of, for, of forgetting is the cloud of, of not thinking about any thoughts of God that arise, regardless of the thought. We don't reject it. It's the cloud of, because this is a, the presence of God beyond all. The cloud of forgetting. See, if, if the cloud of unknowing is everything we've learned about God in time, we're told this in time, this in time. The cloud of forgetting is knowing we've learned about ourselves in time. Too. We have opinions about ourselves, opinions about life, opinions, we have positions about this, and, and all that's important. Our ideas about this person in our life and that person in our life and our career. And so all that is gained through time. And so we don't reject any of that, but we also do not think about any thoughts that arise from what we know about ourselves through time. So it's not just that I'm a man, but I have opinions or position what it means to be a man from society, from culture, from my experience. And there's some truth to that. But the mystery of my manhood is divine. You know, mm. a, a woman, uh, she has ideas of what it means for her to be a woman based on her own past experiences, on culture. There's, there's a relative truth in all of that. And some of these ideas are helpful because they're loving and they promote it. And some aren't helpful. But the thing is, they're all finite. See, that's the thing. So we're kind of lovingly um, in this cloud of forgetting is we're not identifying with any thoughts about ourselves because we're trying because the the thoughts about ourselves are thoughts of a relative self formed by those thoughts, but our ultimate self is who we are hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. We're trying to join God and who God knows us to be, see? not who we think we are, imagine we are, you know, like that. So that's my sense of the cloud of forgetting. That's another helpful image. So if we're flying the plane between the cloud of uh, forgetting and the cloud of unknowing, we use a word to, to release ourselves um, in two different ways. So we're releasing ourselves and dropping things into the cloud of forgetting, things about ourselves, complaints we have about, um, you know, people in our lives or, or even loving thoughts that we have about people in our lives. Um, and then in the, uh, then we release like 
we could let a balloon outside the, the plane and it can release up into the cloud of unknowing these thoughts about God, what we think about God, even an, an emotional feeling about God. And it keeps us balanced in that central piece, which is the place where God finds us. It's the place because we're, we're least distracted. That's right. You know, there's another chapter, let me get to another talk, I don't know. And he says, well, what happens in this cloud? You know, like, how, I'm trying to grasp what you're saying here. And he says, your very question puts me into the cloud I want you to enter. That is, So anything with the inquiring self might draw out from it an insight to have about it. Is, is the very temptation to be drawn out of, so hidden with Christ in God, where it's hidden. See, it's innermost, it's hidden. So it doesn't mean that we don't draw out insights insofar as they help us to understand and be true to this. Also notice again, and this idea about thoughts, notice how clear the author's mind is. Notice his thoughts are so clear. And so what actually happens, it isn't disparaging thought. It isn't losing the ability to think. It doesn't mean that because, but what it, it actually clarifies thought. Because it's thought in the service of love. You know, it's thought infused with humility, stuff like that. So that's important, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that space between the two clouds, we we can witness what we're putting into the clouds. It's not like we don't see the clouds and what's what's in there. I think what we're doing here, here's how I put it. I put it in the thing is that, let's say I'm I'm sitting like this. He said, do not get into an art, do not get into a discussion with thought. So what we're aware of is the thoughts that come to us in the sitting. And so the litany that I use, <clears throat> a biblical thought walks in and says mm-hmm. something biblical. Are you sure this is biblical? What about wrong? Do you think, do not get into a discussion with a biblical thought. <clears throat> You'll become biblical. This is who biblical people are. They're people who believe in biblical thoughts. And I say in my own tradition, a Catholic thought comes in. This is true to the church. We'll put in Methodist or Lutheran. Do not get into discussion. You'll become Catholic. And I, you go down the <laughs> list of all these reference points in thought. And then I say, fortunately, nothing happens to any of these things, thank God. But they cease to form the horizon in which the knowledge born of love keeps flowing brighter and brighter. So all these thoughts keep returning, but it's poetic metaphors, it's transparent metaphors, like chanting the Psalms, or instead of the ideology, it's freedom from ideological living. Your example was really helpful, but I think confusing in a way, because um, when you talked about the naughty thought, (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that's in Christianity, Letting, you know, not being attached to our naughty thoughts or sinful thoughts or things like that. But but biblical, Catholic, even you, I think you said a mystical yes. thought. So that feels confusing. What if I had a brilliant mystical thought in the midst of my sin? I, I have to I have to put it in the cloud of unknowing. So here's the example I give to us. Uh, again, say, we were looking, uh, you stopped to watch the sunset. And you don't just notice it in passing, but you give yourself over to the beauty of the setting sun giving itself over to you. And notice that moment. It can be the arms of the beloved, a child, the darkness of the night, whatever it is. Notice that this moment is a moment of heightened awareness. 
It's not lethargic. And also notice you're not thinking. And in other words, it's, it bears witness that awareness qualitatively transcends thought. You may be sitting there having thoughts about sunsets, very deep ones. You could be writing a book on sunsets. See? But all those thoughts about sunsets, regardless of how profound they are, pale compared to the awareness of the overflowing divinity of the oneness of the setting the sun. And I think there are moments like that. I think, you know, a quiet amazement where the rains fall from your hands. And I also think it helps to understand death. We're, we're rehearsing for death, really. Because, because in death, everything falls, you know, the, the one who comes to acceptance in death, freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death, is this overwhelming plenitude of presence that utterly transcends all possible thought. It's because it's God. Is why, and so that's so that's what it is. But then again, once you have an experience like that, it it even heightens then your capacity to think thoughts that embody that awareness, you know, by their the by their clarity or their depth or their sincerity or their things. So that, that's what I think it is. And that's you use that phrase, knowledge born out of that's love. Right. That's yeah. that's kind of knowledge born out of the unitive experience yeah. of God's love. Yeah, we weren't created by God to spend all eternity thinking about God. There aren't seminars, <laughs> you know, weekend events, you know, reading lists, you know, exams. We were created by God. We were created by God for God. Yeah. But there's a certain way of thinking that leads us to the limitations of thinking to go beyond into an awareness of this communion with God, which then circles back and clarifies our thinking, which is the teachings of the mystics. You mentioned uh, something about the constancy of practice, like the cloud talks about a constancy of practice. Do you have a sense of uh, what that would look like, for, especially for a beginner? My, my sense is this, really. Let's say you, you start out on this path. And you can tell because it's subtle, it calls for a certain constancy in fidelity to a daily rendezvous because it's so subtle. And it takes a while to stabilize in the subtlety. Now, as you stabilize in the subtlety, it's important then to stay very patient with this. Because to the constancy of fidelity to the quiet time, you discover that months or maybe years later, in that simple constancy, it's a qualitatively richer realization that was way beyond anything you were capable of the very first time you sat. The very first time it was there, yeah, it was there but hidden. And so over time, as it matures and ripens, I think it gets, it's like, it's like, any, like art or poetry or intimacy, mm -hmm. the, the, it's the constancy of fidelity to it the stabilize ever-widening circles of intimately yes. realized uh, effulgence or fullness. And so we need to be very patient because the way things are now, if we just stay with it, isn't the way it's going to be. There's from Merton saying the whole journey, as life is pilgrimage, is moving from the known to the unknown. And we're always moving from what we know into the next wave of the unknown, giving itself to us and drawing us into that 
circle. And then this idea that that'll go on forever, like for all of eternity that will go on. Would you say, Jim, then for a beginner, the constancy would be to have a kind of discipline, like when you're learning something and you're, but not forcing myself to do it at a certain time or something, but a discipline that comes from this long. Yes, and this is spiritual direction, really, because sometimes we could do this and we, we sense that we're not inclined to do it because it just isn't there anymore for us. And we return back to our Lexio or whatever. Also, we can know that life goes on. And if we're depressed or anxious or mm. trying, it intrudes itself upon. And sometimes we just can't get past the intensity. You know, we have to just, like see it through as best we can. Yeah. But other times what happens is I'm not drawn to do it. I'm being intruded by this sad thing, but I feel called to do it, even though I can't do it. See, And so I sit in the poverty of it as a kind of empty-handed, uh, like a quiet integrity nobody sees, but I feel I'm to do it. You flip it over, someone else could be doing it, but they could be doing it out of ego-based intensity, uh, you know, mystical union or bust, I'm just going to make this happen. <laughs> and it's just, so we're always discerning, you know, in our heart you know, the, the, the spiritual rightness of the choice. And also, I think we can go for weeks or months without this life. And then it circles back around again. You know, like there it is again. It's, so it's, this is very personal for each of us, how this dimension of union goes. It just varies very much. Last question I was curious about. You mentioned a mystic. Was it Nicholas of Cusa? Yeah, just a, it's always fascinating to hear about these mystics. Nicholas of Cusa is so interesting as a mystic because he was born after the Enlightenment. And so he was beginning at the, at the beginning of science. And so you start to see he's not at medieval period, but you can see he's very significant in its mystical consciousness moving into our own era and how he sorts all that out and, and transcends it all and realizes it and and so on. And um, uh, and so I love that, that that phrase of his is that this this way must be um, ineffably um, uh, ineffably understood. And I forget the other one. It's understood, but it's understood ineffably. And I love that. And he has another one. It must be spoken, but it must be. It was like I could go get it right now and read it. But, but I like that. Yes, and he was a reformer too, Jim. Yeah, he was a reformer of the church. But the reform of the church was really. It was like Thomas Merton or Richard Rohr, It's reforming the church to keep it, to renew its mystical, contemplative foundations of Christ consciousness, in the world, on how the church understands itself and how it lives in the world and so on. Wonderful, which is what you're trying to do here as well, Jim. It is. <laughs> exactly. We're all in this together. Well, that's it for today, and my little dog is ready to go out, so he's telling me it's time to finish. Okay. <laughs> I think this has been a wonderful dialogue. It's been very helpful to me, and uh, thank you for taking the time today, Jim, and thank you for that beautiful teaching. Surely, and, and thanks for these questions, which I think will help the listeners to in their own growing understanding uh, as they kind of find their way through this. So anyway, so thank you. And thank you, Corey, behind the scenes. Yes, thank Appreciate you, Corey. It. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.